This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. In many U.S. cities where an auto plant is located, that business is the driving success behind the town and its people. But when that plant shuts down, there are numerous problems that develop, one of which is, according to a new report from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and Massachusetts General Hospital, a rise in opioid overdoses. Dr. Alexander Tsai is an associate professor of psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and also Harvard Medical School, who joins us right now to talk about their report. Dr. Tsai, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much for having us on your show. Thank you. Take us through how, how you were able to collect this data in the first place. Uh, so this was a, a, a pretty uh, long study. We basically spent a year building the database of auto factory closures and looking through reports and uh, car company websites and so on and so forth to identify the factories that were open and the ones that had closed. Uh, next, we paired these data with data on opioid overdoses at the county level. Uh, so we had to figure out how to identify people who might be at the highest risk in the event of an auto plant closure. And following most of the economics literature, we went with counties in the highest quintile of manufacturing jobs. So these are counties in the, in the United States where uh, they are heavily de- reliant on manufacturing uh, for you know a, a large percent of the jobs in the county, uh, and then um, pairing these two data sets together, we basically used an event study approach, which is what economists often use to study what moves sp- stock prices. So a stock might pop if a company announces a merger or if they make some big biotech discovery. Uh, so looking at what happens to the stock price right before versus right after these announcements is a way to isolate the causal effect of interest from all the background noise. And in our case, obviously there's a lot of macroeconomic fluctuations that could be driving these plant closures as well as changes in health at the population level. Right. So this is a, this is taking it one step further than a kind of the, the, the story that we have heard talked about a lot over the last few years is just manufacturing in general. And obviously the pullback in manufacturing that we have seen in some of the smaller towns uh, around the United States and the impact that is having on these cultures in these small towns, not only the business side of it, but the impact it's having on each and every person within that town. Yes, and um, I think it's it's important to emphasize that both supply of opioids and demand for opioids both matter. And our paper looked at one piece of the demand issue, which is like what you said, the collapse of this very economically and very sociologically significant industry in areas of the country where a lot of life and meaning revolves around these companies. Uh, and so the next step is to better understand how supply and demand interact. You know, what is it that creates this perfect storm of conditions that enables the opioid overdose crisis to unfold the way it has unfolded? So then w- I- I- when you look at some of the towns that, that you looked at, what were what demographic groups were the ones that were most impacted by the closure of an auto plant? Uh, so in our data set, uh, we had a limited ability to look at um, uh, racial and uh, sex stratified estimates. But when we did break it down by age, race, and gender, uh, we found that white men aged 18 to 34 year, uh, years of age uh, were probably the hardest hit um, by uh, these uh, uh, auto, auto factory closures. And when you're talking about uh, having that impact, then you're also talking about, obviously, the, the significant other piece to the economic impact on this with 
these individuals may be having to see a doctor, may be being taken care of by a medical facility, but also the strain that they are on economically for having to take care of them if they're in a facility. Uh, yes. So, so it's, it's, it's all of the above. Um, uh, there was um, some, some people beginning, have begun to use this word to describe this perfect storm uh, or a syndemic or a synergistic ep- epidemic. And, and, um, uh, and in this case, it, as a shorthand to describe the opioid overdose crisis is probably okay. It describes these synergistically interacting epidemics that emerge from this miasma of harmful social conditions. Not only do you have the closure of these factories, but you also have this kind of storm of poverty and trauma and chronic pain and uh, physician over-prescribing, uh, loss of meaning, opioid overuse, and so on and so forth. And and we're sort of tackling this perfect storm, that, and, and it totally isn't clear what we should be tackling first. Uh, Shannon Monat, who's a sociologist, calls it the opioid hydra. You cut off one head, two heads take its place, and the question is, how can we strike at the belly of the beast? And our study talks about one of the heads of the hydra. It's not definitive. It's not the end of this literature. It's really only the beginning. How are you able to to tell from the research that you did, how much of a difference there is in terms of the amount of opioid cases in a particular town on average, either in a town that has had a plant closure or has not had a plant closure, and the difference, the significance of just that, uh, that closure playing in terms of the amount of extra opioid cases that may be in play? Yeah, that's a really good uh, uh, question. Uh, so um, our study began in 1999 and went and tracked these counties over a decade and a half. Um, and all of the factory closures in our sample occurred prior to 2010. Um, recently, the Washington Post did a fantastic piece of work about uh, getting uh, some data on opioid uh, shipments and, and prescriptions from the federal government and made the data available online. But uh, we weren't really able to merge that data set with our data set. Um, 2010 actually is right around the time, which is when our all of the factories in our sample had closed. Uh, 2010 is right around the time that prescription opioids actually began a decade-long decline. Uh, so uh, for the past uh, nine to 10 years, um, the rate of prescriptions of opioids have, has actually been declining. And so um, that, that's kind of what I was referring to when I was referring to sort of the sort of need to focus both on supply and demand. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, if you just focus on on, on supply and pre- physician prescribing, uh, it's not totally clear to me that that would kind of solve things because uh, opioid prescriptions are already in decline. And so we need to investigate other factors that could co- be contributing to the, the horrific rate of overdoses. It, it obviously does put a, a, a larger strain on the medical professionals in these particular towns in terms of dealing with these cases and, and obviously the pattern that they are in trying to treat these cases as they come forward. Yeah, and that's one of the next things that we'd like to do with our research, um, not only looking at the different types of economic shocks and different ways of measuring economic opportunity and equality, but also figuring out what are the factors at the community level and the individual level that can help uh, uh, individuals and communities respond to these types of shocks. It could be that... Um, um, more social policies relevant to the safety net or uh, uh, a higher concentration of um, uh, providers uh, who are who are um, uh, certified to prescribe opioid agonist treatment could help 
uh, communities be more resilient uh, to these types of shocks. But uh, as far as I know, that type of research hasn't really been done. We're joined by Dr. Alexander Tsai of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, talking about the research that they did along with the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine uh, about the impact of the opioid epidemic, especially in towns where an auto plant had has closed. You're listening to Wharton Business Daily here on Sirius XM 132. This also obviously highlights the role, at least in these towns, that unemployment has on the opioid crisis, not having that job, not having that steady schedule of work, whether it be 6 a.m. to 2, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., or working an overnight shift. Uh, yes, definitely. Like if you talk to people who have lost their jobs and that you know they've they've been used to a steady paycheck and the meaning that accompanies uh, being able to provide for your family and having you know colleagues to talk to and uh, this sort of the steady rhythm of work and and play, you know they do link many of their sort of uh, psychosocial problems back to uh, perhaps you know not having a job or not having that kind of very significant role in their life anymore. Is there also an impact that you found uh, not only with the auto plant workers, but their spouses uh, that, that may not be in that job, but obviously may be feeling the impact from that spouse, that other person uh, having the, 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 the concerns medically from opioid use? Yeah, we weren't able to look at that in our data. We do know from other sociological literature that... Um, uh, uh, problems, uh, both health problems as well as health behavioral problems do sort of transmit within families. Um, and there has been uh, very novel research looking at what happens within a household uh, when somebody in the household receives a prescription for an opioid um, then, you know, somebody else in the household is at high risk for developing an opioid use disorder. Um, that's not our research, but that's um, uh, research that other uh, other folks have done. What do you think then? Then your research tells us about how we need to think about the opioid crisis, at least in these small towns, moving forward. Well, I think that um, we need to think about both demand and supply, and we need to uh, think about uh, you know what are the things that we can do to bolster individual and community resilience. Uh, and we're not talking just about the individuals who are affected by uh, job losses, but also uh, their households uh, and their entire communities. It, it also does touch on, as I alluded to at the top, just the, the, the generic issues that we have in this country right now, in part with manufacturing and obviously the loss of manufacturing jobs in, in a variety of cities around the United States and the impact that that loss of jobs is having not only on the opioid crisis, but in general in a lot of different areas. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and I think uh, some automakers are trying to do what they can to blunt the impacts of of these types of, uh, of shocks. So, for example, when GM closed its plants in Ohio, Michigan, and Maryland, uh, they had this you know, contract agreement with the United Auto Workers. Uh, it's my understanding that all of the affected hourly employees were offered jobs at these other GM facilities, but uh, obviously they had to relocate and some relocation assistance was provided. So it's not perfect. Uh, you know, obviously, my guess is that the communities would prefer that the that the plants stayed open yeah. uh, and and you know remain central to life in the community. But uh, GM, my understanding is, to, you know, tried to do what it could to blunt the the adverse impacts of 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 its business decision. So these companies are aware uh, or are becoming more aware of these potential impacts 
when they when when they have to close a plan in a particular city, not just the loss of the jobs, but some of these other uh, these other issues that obviously play out. I think so, but you'd probably have to interview a, a, a CEO of CFO of <laughs> right. Kind. Understand? Uh, is it the expectation then that? And, and I guess I should say the the other element to this is while. As you said, with GM, they made the offer uh, to move people to other plants in other locations. That may be, I think, more uh, the norm, or I should say more the option rather than the rule, because of the fact in many cases people don't have that money once they lose that job to go searching for another job in a town 75 or 100 miles away. It becomes that much more of a challenge for them. That sounds about right, and and um, you know, a- along with uh, relocation, it, th- there's probably a need for job retraining, uh, and we know that n- you know these retraining programs d- aren't always um, uh, as wildly successful as we'd want them to be. Um, and you know, it's 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 tough to retrain. You know, if you're if, if you if you're used to doing uh, a particular job for ten twenty years and you're getting really good at it, uh, and then you know, some somebody comes along and says, "Well, you know, you're you're free to move to, you know, some other state, 400 miles away, um, and uproot 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 your family." Uh, then you know, you maybe you might not want to do that. If if I can anecdotally, where do you think we are right now as a country in terms of uh, of trying to deal better with the opioid crisis? Um, so I think as a whole, we are not doing great. Um, as I mentioned, uh, opioid prescriptions have been in a decade-long decline. So at least from the healthcare perspective, uh, we're trying to tackle um, the the provider end of things. Uh, sometimes we're doing a little bit of overcorrection. So uh, you might have heard about how the CDC recently issued guidelines about uh, opioid overprescribing. So uh, doctors basically went 180 degrees the other direction, started cracking down on prescriptions, and uh, you had a lot of people with chronic pain syndromes who couldn't get uh, prescriptions or whose doctors were retiring and they couldn't find a new doctor to take their place. And there were a lot of people in chronic pain who were who were not being served served well by the medical system. Uh, and so that is one area where we could be doing better. Um, I think in terms of uh, expanding access to treatment uh, is is another area where we haven't uh, been doing as well as we should be. So uh, um, uh, Keith Humphreys of Stanford and Harold Pollock of University of Chicago, they have this thing where they refer to the stock in the flow of the opioid use disorder crisis. On the one hand, we have people who already have opioid use disorders. And on the other hand, we want to prevent new people from developing them. And so we need policy and healthcare systems to address both without doing harm. So for people who already have opioid use disorders, we want them in treatment. And when treatment fails, we want the failure to be less harmful. So they, they, they might go back to using opioids, but we don't want them to die. And so that means expanding access to evidence-based treatment, uh, regulating non-evidence-based uh, treatment, which is you know this totally unregulated industry of substance use disorder facilities that charge uh, wild amounts out of pocket, and you it's not really clear what 
families are getting for their money, mm-hmm. uh, changing punitive laws that don't really help things like drug-induced homicides that Leo Boletsky, his lawyer, has written a lot about, um, and also implementing these structural interventions to reduce social isolation, give people meaning, enhance human flourishing, and so forth to help people stay in recovery. Now, for the people who haven't yet developed opioid-induced disorders, that's people who maybe have never taken oxycodone in their life, we want to focus on making sure that doctors prescribe opioids and opiates only when they really need them. And when they do prescribe them, we want them to prescribe them only for short periods of time and for severe acute pain. We want to reduce the diversion so that whenever uh, you know one person is prescribing an opioid, like I mentioned before, the other people in the household don't start using them. And for people who are starting to get into trouble with longer-term use, we want to appropriately screen people who might be at risk for developing opioid use disorders. And so the challenge for policy and healthcare systems is to address both the quote-unquote stock and flow of the epidemic um, without doing harm to, to either. And, and again, if you can, where is it then you think your research in this area will take you next? What are the next steps that you would like to learn coming off of this report? Uh, I think the uh, next steps, we want to learn uh, better uh, what are the mechanisms that that um, that translate these economic, these different economic shocks and economic opportunity and sort of the fading American dream and how that translates into uh, health problems like opioid use disorder. So if we can figure out the mechanisms that link one to the other, then possibly we can develop interventions to block the, the sort of the mechanistic transfer uh, and improve population health. Dr. Sai, thank you very much. Uh, great work. And we look forward to hearing from you uh, later on with your updated research. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much for having us on your show. Thank you, Dr. Alexander Sai, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and also at Harvard Medical School. As we mentioned, that report uh, done in uh, coordination with Mass General and also the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.